you. Thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my black little heart. You came here for some excitement tonight, and that's just what you're going to get. Who wants to be famous? Who wants to die for art? I do! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. Well, folks, all of my panelists have problems, lots of problems. And what kind of problems do they have? Angelique, what kind of problems do you have? Female trouble. <laughs> thought you lost your voice, man. Liar. I uh, it's come back. You guys shit. are miracle workers. Shit was golden. It's all that talking about barfing and stuff. Yep. It healed me. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. There's a lot of female trouble going on here tonight, folks, for the fourth episode of our John Waters Director's Series. Tonight, we have the same crew that were on the last uh, Pink Flamingos episode. So let's, in case you are new to this string of episodes, let's introduce those folks, shall we? You just heard the fabulous tones of Miss Angelique Bone. How are you doing tonight, Miss? I'm doing all right. <laughs> just all right? Well, you know, I, I've got so many problems. Yeah, one of them <laughs> sounds like your voice. Yeah, I've got some crazy plain crud, so... Uh, I went to the doctor today, which is really big because I never go to the doctor. So I'm on official medication now. Kind of feels good. Yeah. You kind of have like if there was a female version of Tom Waits, you, you kind of <laughs> have that sound to you right now. <laughs> or Cookie Monster. Or Cookie Monster. <laughs> <laughs> I could go either way. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it at that, folks. We're going to move on. And King Baltimore himself, Mr. Seth Paulin of CelluloidTear.com, is here. Hello, Seth. How you guys doing out there? Oh, just wonderful, Seth. Just wonderful. Next to him, you heard him. I, it, it feels like it was only a couple days ago. That I talked to this gent because it was this week is jam packed with Astro Radio Z. You heard Mr. Jeremy from the Hunnic Outcast podcast. He's back to talk some more John Waters. How you doing tonight, sir? I'm just so fucking beautiful. I can't stand it myself. Yes, I understand that. <laughs> I think you guys are so beautiful. I could shit. Speaking of shitting, Mr. Gonzarific himself has come on to unleash some verbal diarrhea about the amazing John Waters. How are you doing tonight? There you go, Jack. Yeah, it wouldn't be an episode without you making a lot of fart noises endlessly. Uh, yeah, but I'm an award-winning journalist. So <laughs> <laughs> That's why I bring you on. This this allows you to be able to make all the fart noise. It's, it's kind of like a release. Yeah, you know, more ways than one, homie. Exactly. 
<laughs> All right, enough of, enough of this nonsense. Let's get into it, folks. This is the fourth movie in John Waters' official filmography. Look, the, the star of Pink Flamingos is here again. It's divine. She's got balls, and she's got female trouble. I'm a thief and a shit kicker, and uh, I'd like to be famous. Dawn Davenport is eating a meatball sandwich right out in class. Here she is, divine as Dawn Davenport, a feisty young high school girl. My parents are going to be real sorry if I don't get them cha-cha heels. Nice girls don't wear cha-cha heels. They'll never wear those ugly shoes. I told I you to come out. Yes, she had a lot of problems. And she found herself in big female trouble. I just wanted to tell you that I'm pregnant and I want money. Baby, just because you got them big udders don't mean you're something special. It's hard being a loving mother. Baby, I give her free food, a bed, clean underpants. What does she expect? Look in the mirror, Taffy. For 14, you don't look so good. Never have I encountered such a morally bankrupt group of people. You can't hide them. can't hide them. If they're smart, they're queer. And if they're Crime enhances one's beauty. The worse the crime gets, the more ravishing one becomes. I'm going to chop off your scrawny little paw. Watch as Divine performs the most perverse acts ever brought to the screen. I blew Richard's back. And I'm so fucking beautiful, I can't stand it myself. Follow Divine's life of sex and crime from its tawdry beginning to its very end. Share the tears and laughter with Divine, Edith Massey as Aunt Ida, and the Pink Flamingos Gang. A new high in low taste. John Waters' Female Trouble. She had a lot of problems. Coming soon from Saliva Films. So here we have this the story of Miss Dawn Davenport, this wonderful 16-year-old girl whose only dream in the entire world is to get cha-cha heels for Christmas. She goes home to a loving set of parents who not only don't get her those cha-cha heels, but want her to be a good girl. And what does she do? She kills her mom by pushing a tree on top of her and runs out the door screaming, I'm out of here, while her dad says, fuck you. <laughs> that is the attitude of what we have going on here in Female Trouble is basically John Waters starting what would be considered kind of one of his main themes uh, going forward which is about juvenile delinquents. Divine as Don Davenport is one of the biggest juvenile delinquents in all of John Waters' films. Now, going from here, Divine not only is this juvenile delinquent, she turns into this crazy adult that's a that's a thief, a shit kicker, and then it, she becomes kind of what Divine was in Pink Flamingos, this maniac. And uh, this movie feels more like we're following the life story of one character as she spirals into madness. Now, Seth, what did you think of Divine and the direction John Waters 
uh, took her into this movie from Pink Flamingos. I think he let Divine shine <clears throat> a lot more. Just gave uh, Divine and yeah, in and out of the Divine costume and look uh, more to do. It's not just acting vile, but there's a lot of comedy timing in there. Uh, lots of funny dialogue, some physical humor. And then again, as, uh, you know, Harris Glenn Milstead out of the costume, we get to see some acting there as well with uh, a Christmas morning <laughs> garbage dump. <laughs> Which is one of the weirdest scenes in all of cinema where it's, we see Divine raped by the male version, Glenn Milstead, <laughs> raped by herself or himself. Only Divine could fuck herself on Christmas morning. It is it is a really truly touching sequence. Uh, Angelique, what did you think of that scene? Well, I mean, he at least took her to a mattress. I mean, that was romantic. Um, I guess I'm giving a little too much into my uh, my taste, but uh, <laughs> okay. Does this did this give you a flashback as to the first time you made love? Oh no, no, no. <laughs> not the first time. <laughs> oh my god, dude! <laughs> I mean, put on a fish called Wanda, then we'll talk. Oh my god, this just got really fucking disturbing. <laughs> Really fucking disturbing. I mean, Andrew, what do you what do you think of this opening sequence? Right, I think we need to hear more about this. What, <laughs> okay, Andrew is taking his pants off, and it, no, no, I'm just started. <laughs> no, man, you you know the to me, man, the the way that they've done that, the way that it was shot. I'm sitting there looking at like you know the doubles and stuff. And then, you know, there's there's the doo-doo stains, but there's also the sounds because when he goes down on her, she's not, like, screaming for help. Let's let everybody know that hasn't seen this movie. You know, I might be skittish about this scene. Yeah. She's, she's, it, she's into it, man. And she's yelling out, ain't it, like that. And the sounds they make, it's all real loud close-up microphone licking sounds. It's so crazy. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is they got um, a stand in, which later in the film is uh, she the stand in for Divine when uh, Glenn Milstead is is quote unquote. But it starts off as a rape. Let's be honest. And then it turns into lovemaking, quote very, unquote, lovemaking. Very um, exploitation movie. Yeah. Yeah. It, it um, <clears throat> the stand in for when he's the man and. <laughs> She is like this um, Elizabeth Taylor lookalike who later in the film would pop up again. Uh, Jeremy, do you know the significance of this actor in, in this film? Because I, I think, wasn't she a friend of John Waters that came in and, and played uh, Divine's uh, stand-in uh, double during that sex scene? 
Yes, this is another one of John Waters' friends that he met through friends while he was living in Baltimore. It's an interesting story when John Waters just decided one day to be a rebellious teenager and just like go to downtown Baltimore and network through people to see who wasn't boring. Uh, This was a woman, I can't remember the name, but she looked like Elizabeth Taylor. She didn't have the voice of Elizabeth, unfortunately, but she was a pack rat and she had a very small house with all these pack ratty things. Sadly, she's just another one who perished due to a drug overdose. Oh, wow. But yeah, I, I, John Waters says in the commentary that this movie depresses him because this is the one that everyone that he really gave a damn about would be dead before or after this movie was released. Yeah, it wasn't Cooking Mueller. She died soon after this, didn't she? 89. 89. Yeah. Okay, so that was a while after this. Yeah, but David Lockery definitely died of a didn't he I read something that he bled out. No, what happened was is that he was actually supposed to be in Desperate Living, but what happened was, uh, to quote John Waters, he's not going to be in it because we both know that he's addicted to speed. And during that time, died of an overdose, I think during the first couple weeks of it. So so what happened, I I don't know what character he was supposed to play, but yeah, uh, Lockery... Um, went to the hospital, I think, went to sleep and never woke up. And that was pretty much it. That's unfortunate because he his character in this movie, which we'll get to later, because his character doesn't come into play till about the halfway mark of this movie, is a great character, which is almost an extension of uh, the Raymond character from Pink Flamingos, um, just a little more effeminate. But anyways, Let's let's get back to the beginning of this film, where it essentially is the teenage years of Dawn Davenport, where, you know, she uh, she's portrayed as this runaway after she she has this core group of bad girls that smoke in the in the ladies room. And uh, they they just talk about how they want to leave what they're doing and do bad things. And I'd like to set fire to this dump just because we're pretty. Everybody's jealous. It's like a prison here. Even at Christmas, it's like a prison. Don't even mention Christmas, Chicklet. My parents are going to be real sorry if I don't get them cha-cha heel. I asked and I better get. I never get enough Christmas presents. Everybody's so damn cheap. I should be getting a lot. And I'm going to take it all back and get the money for it. You can do that now. We'll probably get caught for hooking this period, but who cares? Who cares if they fail? It'd be fun to be expelled. Surprisingly enough, most of them turn into prostitutes (laughs) (laughs) and dancers and things like this. So anyways, this opening sequence is a motif that went on in further films. Now, Andrew, do you think kind of that opening sequence in the school where they're smoking in the in the lounge and they're in the classroom is kind of like a precursor to some of the stuff you would see in cry baby. Yeah, man. I mean, he's showing all his influences of those. Uh, actually, he's showing a ton of influences in this movie. Um, Cause I think uh, later on uh, divine's look is exactly uh, like Erica Gavin and Vixen, those eyebrows, man. I mean, and there's a, there's a shot when he, he's the go-go dancer. That's just like at the beginning of faster pussycat, you know? Mm-hmm. So, you know, John Waters, he was fascinated by, uh, you know, the delinquent girls at his school. He's, that was one of the things, man, when I read that shock value, because I was like, that's what happened to me. 
because it was a gang. There was a girl gang in my junior high school, and I was like, I was so obsessed with them. I did my hair like them. I tried to dress like them and everything. And I was simultaneously terrified of them too. Like I didn't want them to see me and beat me up because I was doing it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's just there's it's something about it. It, just, it hits certain people a certain way. You could just you could just tell. Um, I mean that. I wish they were all in Crybaby. That would that would have been awesome. It would have been awesome. It's too bad that uh, Divine wasn't around for Crybaby because I think she would have been an amazing, you know, inclusion into that film. But the dialogue in this opening section of the film when she's a teenager <laughs> is seriously some of the most funny shit uh, up until this point that John Waters has put out there. Uh, Seth, what do you think of how on fire John Waters is with his script and this first opening section of the film? I think the script is uh, easily is best up to this point. It's just hit after hit after hit, no break. Uh, there's really no filler in it. It's just all good quality dialogue. When they're sitting there smoking, and I forget which friend it is, says, I'm going to take my presents back to the store and get the money back. You can do that, you know. <laughs> I felt like I've heard that exact line come out of someone's mouth in high school in that exact tone. Like, it wasn't <laughs> like a snotty know-it-all kid, and I, I just feel like it was pretty spot on. <laughs> I just loved how the only thing that, that kept Divine from – breaking out and being the person she wanted to be was a pair of cha-cha heels. That's it. If she, she, that's all she needed and her life was going to be complete. It's the little things. It's the, it's the little <laughs> things. And then that's what spurs into motion. I like to think the cha-cha heels is ultimately what made her a murderer. That she would, didn't get her cha-cha heels and the rest of her life was totally tossed aside. She would have been a brain surgeon. One bad day, man. <laughs> Obviously. Obviously, brain surgery is the next step after <laughs> gotcha heels. <laughs> Obviously. So anyways, so here we go. We go from this first section. The, the film is really laid out almost like one of those made-for-TV biopics where it goes in sections of their lives. So Don Davenport in, the, in her teenage years, then it goes into Don Davenport after, you know, she's quote unquote made love with herself and uh then it goes on to she she ends up getting impregnated and then having the baby in in this dingy like little room where she she gives birth all by herself and then chews the umbilical cord out and has this obviously newborn baby covered in fake blood and she's holding it next to her. Now I know there's a story behind this. Jeremy, what is what is uh, the story behind the newborn baby, which is obviously not like one of these witchcraft deals where they brought in a two-year-old and tried to parade it around like it was some uh, newborn baby. What's the story behind this baby in this scene? Well, with this one, it's one of the actors that, of course, is the receptionist at Mystique, and she'll also be uh, the star in the next movie we discussed, Desperate 
living. Um, pretty much she and her biker boyfriend gave birth to a baby, and John asked that if he could use it for this one scene. The way that they filmed it, according to the commentary, was that they did try a little corn syrup, a little paint, but they also made sure that where they kept the baby, everything would be okay. Now, of course, uh, there were divorce proceedings with someone else, and uh, the boyfriend of the wife was afraid that that woman would try to take the baby away and and it was this whole big thing but the way everything was filmed thank god uh, the baby turned out of course okay and john actually met that uh girl many years later at a convention because he does give uh, lectures and she said i'm baby taffy so everything turned out okay um there's really nothing else to say about it other than John just figured it'd be for shock value purposes because back then it, it is shortly based on a movie he used to watch in high school called Mom and Dad, where apparently it was a woman giving birth to a little girl, but it was the only way to show nudity. And when he was going to Catholic school, nuns are telling him, like, don't see this movie, and he had to see it, and that's pretty much his static, you know, homage to that movie. One of the things you just said, though, is a, is a question I kind of had for everybody here. Now, beside the, the sex scene uh, between Divine and himself, this movie right now, as I look at the DVD and I flip it around, it says that it's NC-17. What exactly do you feel warrants this rating? Seth, Gator do you think? Balls, Gator's dick, sorry. Is, is that it? Is yeah, that there's just uh, a dick in this a movie? A couple close-ups of dicks. That's it. I, I'm really, like, I was kind of shocked. I was always under the assumption this was just an unrated film. And then when I took a look at it, NC-17, you don't see that rating very often. And I'm wondering, like, when did it get the, has, has it always had this rating? Yes. Um, Waters, unfortunately, he hated this. But even with Pink Flamingos, it was being shown in porn shops. And he didn't think of it as porn. He just thought of it as art. He doesn't, you know, porn is porn, art is art. And he thought when he was doing sex scenes and they were simulated that they were just part of the story and part of the characters. So he never quite understood when he had to finally distribute the movie a past pink flamingos that when new line whoever would get their hands on it they said well we have to make this it can't be rated r because we can't have anybody you know see something like this where we're looking at full frontal nudity and it was the curse scene and it was pretty much everything that the envelope was being pushed back then today it's no big deal because you could find the stuff literally anywhere but back then it was a thing that Waters just said, well, you know, I made the movie, might as well sell it. But he always opposed to this. He never quite understood why people thought of this as pornography. He just saw this as characters that would do stuff that they would probably do in real life, that these are people that he just met. Yeah, well, he's he comes from the art house kind of point of view with these kind of films. And to be honest, in this day and age, Seeing a dick on a screen, that's not really that big a deal. Yeah, dude, NC-17, that's what they give. If you put some dicks in a movie, you get NC-17. It's just like, you remember Eastern Promises, Cronenberg, where there's mm -hmm. that fight and there's all balls everywhere? Yeah. There's not any dicks. If there was dicks, it would have been NC-17, like Crash. But it's because it was only balls. It was, uh, And it wasn't a sex scene. It was a fight. Balls yeah. in a fight, rated R. <laughs> dicks and balls in the bed. <laughs> 
okay. So here's here. This is this is news to me, and it's a, I'm, I'm gonna put a, a when you see the YouTube version of this video, I'm gonna put this in flashing red letters. Balls rated R. If it's a fight, dick and balls <laughs> NC seventeen. Yeah, <laughs> it's a thin line. Yes, yeah, so just an observation, man. It's it's crazy to me. It's insane, but it also speaks to the culture, which was, I think, a lot of what was being um, talked about in Pink Flamingos. Because female trouble, to be honest, from a content standpoint, is much tamer than Pink Flamingos was. And um, there's only really a few super hard, quote unquote, shock scenes as you know, we obviously you if you had listened to the last episode, Pink Flamingos is almost a continual stream of shock scenes. Female trouble is way more concerned with telling a story. Now it may be shocking in, in kind of in your face and repulsive in some aspects, but it's a much more toned down and comedic story. It's much more focused than anything he has done up until this point. Angelique, what did you think of the direction he decided to take after pink flamingos with this one? Well, I'm glad it kind of went more narrative because, I mean, like like Pink Flamingos did have a narrative. It had a direct line, but it was mostly just, bam, we're going to get you. Bam, we're going to get you. And here's a little bit of the reason why. And then bam, bam, bam. Yeah, Dog absolutely. <laughs> so this, I, I like the fact that <clears throat> it was kind of toned down in a sense but all the dialogue, it was dialogue driven. It was story driven. It wasn't shock driven. Right. And I think if anything, and it's kind of it's funny that I'm going to make reference to this for, for this, but kind of like the the newest Human Centipede film, the shocks comes almost entirely from the dialogue Absolutely. in and of itself. That was like Shakespeare to me. Well, you're in good company because Andrew and I both loved that movie. Oh, my God. <laughs> I made my mother buy it because she's like, I like the first one and the second one. And I was like, have you seen three? She's like, no. I was like, buy three. Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, you became a devil. <laughs> buy three. No. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been awesome to see all of a sudden your eyes glow red and your voice turns into Chris Barnes. <laughs> yep. That just happened, oh. actually. So. <laughs> but she yelled by three into a bucket the first time, so she wasn't clearly understood. Right. <laughs> oh, before we go down that rabbit hole. Uh, but, Andrew, did you also feel that this kind of followed that same route where now instead of being visually shocking, it was more like how far could he push what these people said? I don't know, man. I can't help but see female trouble as just an epic odyssey. You know, the, when I think about the story, I just think of like how long it goes, like, you know, what I mean, how far it goes and everything. It's just it doesn't seem like he's just trying to freak people out. I think he's really trying to, like Angelique said, he's really trying to tell a story here. Mm -hmm. It's like a clear to A to B to C. And like Seth said, you know, there's no air in it. It really moves. Yeah. Um, so but all the all the shocking moments are story points and stuff. They don't just seem like they're throwing like, you know, as much as we love the asshole and pain flamingos that you could, you could see a version where that's out of it. You know what I'm saying? And it's not going to do nothing to the story, you know? Absolutely. But here, man, you can't, I can't think of anything they could take out because especially with the character Taffy, right? The little, the kid, uh, Mink stole, he's amazing. 
And she is as angry as she is and all that stuff she says about, you know, when Gator's like, suck my dick or whatever. And she's like, I wouldn't suck your lousy dick if I was suffocating and there was oxygen in your balls. Right. That's like one of the best lines. That's a real important, you know what I'm saying? Like that actually, it, it furthers character as an editor, you know, yeah. um, if it doesn't move the plot along or the character along, it doesn't belong in there and it can go that you, you can't argue that that's there for no reason. Right. Right. I think in general, most of the dialogue in this, it was to build each of these characters. Let's let's go ahead and let's talk about some of the crazy ass characters in this film. You just got done talking about Mink Stoll playing. I guess she's she's supposed to be, uh, as you said, Jeremy, a 14 year old. Well, what happened was, is that they did have the baby and then they did have this little girl that was also a friend of the cast members. But again, we do this see this scene where Divine uh, tries to chain up Taffy. And you can see that John Waters makes is that the girl's having a great time and she's putting her hand through the chain so she's being chained up. But there were still child labor laws. So all the stuff that they were going to do, John figured he couldn't get away with this with a real 14-year-old kid. So when they had to age Taffy from a baby to nine years old to 14, that's when they had to bring in Mink. And it, this was kind of interesting because, well, the last time we saw Mink, at least the last two times if you go with multiple maniacs, uh, Pink Flamingos, she's usually not a fan of Divine. And I feel that it only makes sense to bring Mink into a character where they're going to be rivals again. And this time it, 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 it's still weird that she still hates Divine, but now she has a reason to hate Divine. She plays the daughter who who they I think through force of of will divine is kind of made her be this invalid sort of they they keep calling her and I know this is super on PC they keep calling her retard the entire movie and she's this kind of simpleton who just hangs around in a little uh, girl's dress and jump ropes and yells and screams and then fakes auto accidents with ketchup in the living room um, which is one of my favorite scenes of the entire film but her character is super interesting and has a crazy ass weird arc Seth tell me a little bit about the arc that this character goes through Oh, from the obnoxious bratty child to the car accident games in the living room to finding out her dad wants to rape her and then deciding to uh, find eternal love and peace as a Harry Krishna <laughs> tries to convert her mom at the brink of madness to follow Krishna and uh, meets her demise. Disturving, man. I love Everyone- I thought Link Stone was great uh, yeah. portraying like a weird grown adult child it, it is funny that you know by saying that and describing the plot line of just her character that kind of describes a lot of the characters in this film this film is just kind of like a downward spiral for everyone that's involved everyone that's around divine gets sucked into this madness and unfortunately are aren't just innocent bystanders to her neurosis so uh angelique what would be if you were to pick one character other than Divine that you really thought was cool? What would it be? Oh, um, what's her name? Donna, Donna the Dasher. hairdresser, Donna Dasher. Yes. So let's talk about her a little bit. Donna Dasher 
was the mastermind. Like she had the big idea. She was all in charge because uh, Dan just did whatever she said. So she sees these, you know, crazy looking people. Let's see what we can get them to do. And, you know, just wash our hands of it when it goes too far. Right. And when you're talking about the master plan, she ta- you're talking about that her, she she runs the sal- this salon that eventually hires Divine on. She comes in and her and David Lockery run this place and then see Divine as kind of an oddity that they can use to satisfy their own desires. She was a really interesting character. Do you think she played well with Lockery uh, compared to Mink Stoll in Pink Flamingos? I mean, it's kind of apples and oranges, but I mean, they kind of matched like, because this was not as extreme a character as, as Raymond Marble. So, you know, he wasn't walking around flashing people with kielbasa tied to his wing. Oh, what a depressing! I wish there would have been more of that in this. Film. I do too, but you know, you, you, we got to deal with what we've got here. So. <laughs> <laughs> he was more, I guess, subservient to Donna, whereas Connie and Raymond they were partners in crime and each kind of had their own thing. As this movie goes along, eventually, um, it kind of turns into a story about somebody who's looking to seek fame um, and notoriety through being a murderer and being a crime lord where the the tagline crime it, crime is beauty they they are kind of like the masterminds of uh trying to push divine to be more and more audacious and more and more murderous and more and more maniacal with her actions to the point where it escalates into this big, huge orgy of death where she goes to the stand up and she's having this uh, performance art where she starts killing her audience members. Take a good look at me because I'm going to be on the front of every newspaper in this country tomorrow. You're looking at crime personified and don't you forget it. I framed Leslie Bacon. I called the heroin hotline on Abby Hoffman. I bought the gun that Bremer used to shoot Wallace. I had an affair with Juan Corona. I blew Richard Speck. And I'm so fucking beautiful I can't stand it myself. They were interesting in the fact that they were kind of like these puppet masters behind the scenes trying to, you know, escalate this obviously deranged person past the brink and then fade off into the distance once it got a little too hot under the collars. Um, (laughs) Jeremy, what did you think of uh, these these two characters in relation to Divine in this book? Well, David Lockery... Again, multiple maniacs, pink flamingos now. Uh, he's always been someone who just does not like Divine. I mean, multiple maniacs, he was kind of forced to be with Divine. Pink flamingos, he wanted to outshine Divine. Here he brings in, and I thought this was a sequel to Pink Flamingos because I thought that Cotton just had enough of Divine and just decided to do her own thing. This is a weirder character. I feel that. You know, this character now has white hair. He is more flamboyant, but it's interesting that he has a silver tongue, I feel. It's like in the deleted scenes of Pink Flamingos, uh, the first time that they're going to go and set fire to the trailer, they – 
actually talking about how much they hate nature and how they couldn't stand living in the country because they can't imagine like animals shitting and, and scratching at the door. Here, when they go to Don's apartment, uh, Donald Dasher enjoys white trash. He, he finds it to be art. He finds it like there are things that you can find in the trash to be a treasure. So everything that he says and does, he, even even when Don asks about... Do you have any trouble finding the place? Your directions were pinpoint perfect. And your street, well, it's a street of charm. Oh, thank you. Lovely. And I bet you clean just for us. Well, I did tidy up. Uh, what happened to your eye? Oh, that. I am so embarrassed. I fell getting on the bus and hit my eye on the fare box. Well, I felt like a damn fool. Oh, come on in. May I take a photo of it? Oh, certainly. He just had a great voice and presence this time around. Like, his acting was getting better and better from Maniacs till now, where... He didn't have to – I mean he's not to memorize huge lines, but here it's like he's really getting into the narration and, and breaths and his character. And it's just it, – it's sad that we lost him way too soon. I, I would have loved to see what he could have done with Living or Hairspray or even Crybaby, like, like where John would have taken him next. Yeah, I completely agree. I as he's went along, as we've gone along in these movies, I love him as an actor and as a presence because he always he gets into whatever character he is. And this one I felt was almost like a reflection of the the prototypical artist character, where he was not outside of uh, the subjects that he was interested in and kind of just wanted to plant seeds to see where that could go so that he could sit and produce the art that he wanted to. And they were, it was almost like a Guinea pig that he was working on for a while. Andrew, what did you think of Lockery? He's got such a sadness to him, man. Those blue eyes, I think is what it is, dude. He just, for some reason, you know, and maybe it's because of having read all the books and watched the documentaries and shit. You just think about, you know, that he, he had a sad life and he was angry about like not getting money from from that cult fame you know which there, there isn't any right you know, i had like a two-hour conversation with being stolen she mentioned that a lot like it would yeah be cool if money went along with cult infamy but that's just not the way it goes but like you know he represent too like you said it's almost like a john's satire of the fame machine you know mm-hmm. even going back to like kenneth anger hollywood babylon type stuff of what the, the dream machine did to people about, you know, all the people that jumped off the Hollywood sign and stuff. He's kind of like that in this movie, at least the embodiment of, of how John Waters like maybe feel, feels about what that does to people or like the kind of people that would happily see someone d- d- destruct, you know, in the name of entertainment and shit. Yeah, which really plays into a lot of the narcissistic culture that we have right now online, on YouTube, the reality TV craze, Things where people are willing to just put themselves out there with very little disregard uh, for what they look like, only for the matter of fact that people are talking about them. Yeah, and man. I think this is a theme that John Waters would play on over and over and over again. And this was something that Pink Flamingos very much was about. Yeah, and yeah. I think it was way more focused in this film, though, Andrew. 
No, I, I agree with you totally, man. I mean, look at the, look at, I don't, I don't want to flash forward to the ending and stuff, but like there's a scene where something happens with Gator. She gets Gator fired from the job at the hair salon. And the mom gets pissed off. So Anita comes through and she goes, here's something for your face, motherfucker. And she throws acid <laughs> yep. in, in, uh, in her face and it gets all m- melted and, you know, toxic Avengery and shit. But they like, they think it's awesome. So what would be the worst thing that would happen to you in your life if glamour is a thing for you? suddenly becomes like even cooler because like they're saying it's cool you know it's a right it's funny but it's also really kind of freaks me out a little bit you know well, it's also it's also like i hate to to say it's one of those contrarian ideas that you see over and over and over again with with certain crowds in art scenes where it's just like this is so contrarian to what the ideal is that this is what makes it cool. Yeah. That was a lot of that was, was this total. And I, I wonder because a lot of his mannerisms also, when, when you sat and listened to interviews with Andy Warhol and his manner of speech, it seemed like there was a lot of that ringing through. Do you think Jeremy, that was kind of some of it? You know, I know that John lives in New York and he does. I'm sure he, he he's been to the factory and I'm sure that he is a fan of Warhol or, you know, when Warhol was around. But I don't know if he was trying to cut and copy paste anybody. I mean, he was influenced. I mean, he, he, he's always said that he loved Kenneth Anger. Uh, he loved any controversial film that was not being advertised in theaters that he had to go to either downtown Baltimore or downtown Manhattan to find. He loved William Castle movies with the gimmicks. We'll get there with um, polyester. But I don't think John was ever emulating anybody. I mean, he just liked to be a sponge and absorb, but I don't think he really – you could tell if if you watch a Warhol movie, which I've seen, and you watch something that John does – they're two different entities that, you know, they're strangers that pass in the night. John was more angry and passionate, and I think Warhol was more of, like, experimental. Right. So I think, again, I haven't watched – I mean, John did see the 24-hour movie, and he's, and apparently he was able – well, he was on drugs, of course, so that's <laughs> not a surprise that he saw it. But I, I, I'm sure that in a roundabout way of John Waters wanted to do a Warhol dedication he would have but i never seen in any of his movies where he's really copying warhol even with this i mean this movie is supposed to be about art but we always have a interpretation i never really know what the next big thing will art will be and and this is it, it's weird because we see something like pink flamingos about how celebrities are being turned into multimedia sensations and this movie didn't do well and yet you have something years later, like uh, oh, I don't know the Quentin Tarantino Oliver Stone movie. Uh, what was Natural it? Natural Born Killers. Yeah, that, well, yeah. That, I was getting to that. Yeah, you know, you, you know where I was going with this. Yep. Um, oh yeah, what was it? Uh, oh, I don't know, Natural Born Killers. Because with that one, it feels like it's something that John Waters would say and do, and it's two people that are killing and become multimedia sensations. And that movie was also controversial, but it's got more press than Female Trouble. And I think that this one is better than Natural Born Killers. 
do do you think maybe the the difference there is that that movie is much more slick and digestible from a visual and audio standpoint where this movie still is kind of like its stranglehold is in the raw kind of gritty low budget aesthetic that his early films hold yeah and i also think that with john waters movies is that waters had these shoestring budgets that Mm -hmm. all he could really do. And this would be the last time he was allowed to use side B of records. And this was also the last time he was able to get people that were working at news stations and on their weekdays or weekends off were able to help film something. So John would pretty much get what he can. And he hitchhiked a lot and he wrote a book about it. But he went to the, these trials. He went to the Manson trials and he went to the Alice Crimmins trials where I think he was just more there than Stone who just pretty much read a newspaper and just – edited things and put anime together. So that's why that Natural Born Killers is slicker. But I think it's also because Natural Born Killers has names that we're more familiar with than we would be for Female Trouble, which is a shame. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, Natural Born Killers, it's Woody Howerson, it's Rodney Dangerfield, it's Juliet Lewis, it's – you know that that woman who was the secretary in Ferris Bueller that that Juliet Lewis and – ends up killing because, you know, Rodney Dangerfield was abusing her and the mother said nothing. But the point is, is that we remember those actors. Female Trouble was a very low budget film. It was in the 70s and people go, oh, well, that's the 70s for you. They don't appreciate what Waters was saying more. And he wasn't so dependent on slick. I mean, yeah, everybody uses the soundtrack, but John's soundtrack at least had something to deal with what was going on in the moment, especially Pink Flamingos. We didn't talk about that, but the snippets of Riot going on cell block number nine and how much is that dog in the window, that had everything to do with what's going on in the now. And even with this movie, and I think that John was able to take that and make that into, well, what it is today. And unfortunately, anything today is so concerned about quick edits and big name stars that I would rather this is why I'd rather go back and talk about this movie. Yeah. Well, this was something that we had talked about when we had our first episode about Mondo Trasho is that his musical choices are very well thought out and they're they're very much contextually a part of the films. Now, obviously, Mondo Trasho is on a completely different level than Female Trouble or Pink Flamingos. But there's still that care for placing the music that's within these films in very specific ways and very specific spots. So if you loved some of the stuff that was that came before that he had put in his movies, that's still ringing through here. John Waters always had an and still does have impeccable musical tastes. I love that. It's such a intrinsic part of the aesthetic of these films is this old school music. It gives character to these movies that a regular orchestral score could never give in a million fucking years. Andrew, what do you think of his soundtracks that come with these films? Man, we're, you remember when we talked about that very first one, uh, Mondo Trasho, and about how like he was able to use the songs to propel the narrative and sort of like cut things in and around things that were happening on the screen. And he stills doing that even in this movie, because there's a part where 
um, he kind of does another scene of divine, like, you know, running around just having a glamour fit down the street or whatever. And there's this dude. And in the song, the song says something about your eye. And it's a motherfucker with a glass eye that just <laughs> pops out of his head. <laughs> I love that part. Right. And you're like, damn, that could have been right out of Mondo Trasho, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the thing is, if you were to watch these movies in order, you absolutely see the progression of how he took these snippets of ideas and grew them and honed them and made it more perfect and made it his own his own voice came through and he kept hearkening back to these motifs over and over and over again and i think that's what you know when he ultimately would break out he had such a strong voice by time like Hairspray came out in some of the bigger stuff. I mean, there's a reason why those movies work so well, because he sat and honed his craft through all of these movies to perfection at that point. And this movie obviously feels like he was moving forward in a way where he want he didn't want to just make experimental in your face shock movies. This is still a transitional kind of movie where if you had seen his letter era stuff, you would know that it would become more of a Hollywood type film. Like his films would feel more narrative. They would have the same kind of beats that most of the Hollywood movies would have. This movie still kind of, you know, has the, the punk rock kid kicking and screaming going throughout it but it still feels like it really wants to start being like the movies he grew up and loved. Cause he, even though he, he says he loves Kenneth anger and he loves Warhol and he loves all these experimental, he grew up watching a lot of what would be really considered the queen movies, you know, the, the, the big women movies with the big hair and the big uh, personalities these movies that were character pieces in Don Davenport in this film in the story arc that is, that is played through very much harkens back to those kind of movies. So this is a good uh, starting block for what would come. I think up until this point, the first three films were very much, you know, punk rock. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And I'm just throwing anything at the wall. And that's kind of some of the fun of those movies is that there's so much energy. There's there's such experimentation that it's very unexpected. This film felt very much like he was making a concerted effort to try and make a more traditional film. What do you think, Seth? I think you nailed the nailed it right on the head. Um, The first few movies, very abrasive viewing experience. And I think this one still has that quality. But he definitely made a more traditional movie. Uh, it's still very much John Waters with uh, the shocks and exploitation side. But I feel like he started to really open up to a wider audience, or at least uh, at least tried to, with the more straightforward narrative and just a more polished effort. Still a little bit raw, hasn't quite got his feet completely planted, but it's a much more... Uh, I'm not sure what the word I'm looking for. Just a a better made film than anything he's made before. 
Right. And even even though some of the stuff looks pretty rickety, like the tide the, the interstitial titles that came in to to tell what section of uh Dawn's life we were in at each time that looked pretty rickety. And uh some of the you know, some of the sets are really bad. His technique is definitely stepped up where the production design has stepped up a little bit more, even though a lot of these were filmed in one location, this this condemned building above a, a restaurant, I believe, or something like that, um, that he would just like move to different sections of the rooms and dress them in different ways. And they would be different. Uh, like one would be the, the salon, one would be the apartment. Uh, and he would just keep flipping around this apartment and filming it that way. But if in not in terms of maybe, you know, the art direction, uh, even though it's a step up and it's more concerned, but more of like in terms of like theme themes, uh, the pacing of the movie, um, how he was using dialogue, how he was telling the story. It's much more sophisticated than anything came before. Now, before we move on to trying to give out fi- final thoughts, and so I, I, we have to sit and talk about Edith Massey. We have to sit and talk about Gator and Aunt Ida. Have you met any nice boys in the salon? Oh, pretty nice. I mean, any nice queer boy. Do you fool with any of them? Aunt Ida, you know I dig women. Uh, don't tell me that. Christ, let's not go through this again. All those beauticians that you don't have any boy dates? I don't want any boy dates. Oh, honey, I'd be so happy if you turned Nally. No way. I'm straight. I mean, I like a lot of queers, but I don't think they're equipment, you know? I like women. But you could change. Queers are just better. I'd be so proud if you was a fag and had a nice beautician boyfriend. I'd never have to worry. There ain't nothing to worry about. I worry that you'll work in an office, have children, celebrate wedding anniversaries. The world of heterosexual is a sick and boring life. Sometimes I think you're fucking crazy. I'm real happy just the way I am. These two characters in this movie, as much as I love Divine in this movie, she's a show stealer. I mean, she is just insane in this movie and we'll we'll talk about her a little bit toward the end here but edith massey she plays an ida who's uh has a nephew that divine eventually marries and her main focus in this movie is to get him to be a gay man because she feels all straight men are stupid and she she thinks that all smart men are gay and that, <laughs> and that he would be so much better off in the world if he would just find a nice queer boy to fall in love with. And yet he keeps telling her, no, I'm straight. I'm straight. Nope, not going to happen. Not going to happen. But but I need you. I want you to be great. I'll set you up. You'll get a good job and blah, blah, blah. I thought this dynamic was hilarious. I thought it was great. It, it's a nice turn on what I'm sure at the time the ideals were completely reversed i thought it was hilarious andrew what do you think of the, what did you think of this relationship and how john waters played with uh kind of the sexuality roles with uh, edith and the gator character dude if you ever see this movie with the audience that scene on the couch man where um she's uh gator comes home from work and Aunt ida's got uh uh ernie 
sitting there waiting for him, trying to set her up, you know, set him up. And so, you know, she's talking to Ernie first, talking about, oh, you're going to love Gator or whatever. And as soon as Gator walks in, he's pissed. Like, he's like, get him out of here, you know. And, yeah. and Ernie's, you know, he's like, wait, what? You know, he's kind of. But that scene kills with audience, man. It kills. You don't, even if you put a scene like that in a movie right now, people would go crazy. It's just, it's so perfect. And, of course, Gator, I don't think he'd ever acted before. And I don't think he ever acted again. But he's like, look, you better beat it before I punch your fucking face out that window. <laughs> yeah, he felt really real. He didn't did. he? Well, except when he said the auto industry, like <laughs> industry. Well, <laughs> man, um, and man, Edie was so good. Not just, I'm sorry, I like her in that laced up black suit, man. I'm sorry about that. That bleach hair, man. Yeah, that would that does it for me right there. And then, um, but that, but Gator is crazy. Just that. It's so good. That whole that exchange, like that's one of my favorite parts, man. Is right there on that couch. What happens there? Because you know, on the one hand, you'd be like, "Well, this is really politically incorrect." What happens? Because like Edith, she you know she uses the word fag in a couple parts too, but you got to keep it in context. You know, around the time that this was made and stuff. But man, that just it plays so good even now. People eat that up. They just can't believe it. That's why I, I almost think, you know, the thing is, a lot of the, the language in context in this movie, I almost think you well, well, you'd have to have a brass set of balls to tr- try and write some of this dialogue nowadays with the PC police. Um, but I don't feel like any of the language in this movie is directed with hate in mind. So no, no, the no. context of that language, it, it takes a totally different connotation in this film compared to if you just had some aggro straight dude saying this kind of stuff. Yeah, that's some fucking offensive shit. But this in this context, it's playful. It, it's done very tongue in cheek. And it it allows you to be able to use these words and flip them in a way that kind of makes you wonder why they have power in the first place. That's it's just, Oh, Angelique, man, hit it, dude. No, I was just agreeing. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's not, they're not being hurled at somebody. It's just like, Oh, well, you know, he's a good fag date him. I thought those, the whole dynamic was one of my favorite things in this movie. So let's go ahead and move on to let's finish up with our with our final thoughts on Divine and where this character goes toward the end. Seth, as as things move along and she becomes this insane maniacal uh, maniac who the only thing she cares about is being famous and being seen. I mean, half of her face is melted off and bubbly and she has this garish mohawk and is jumping around on a trampoline talking about how she wants to uh, give blowjobs to Richard Speck and, and all this audacious shit in front of this crowd. How did you feel the divine, like the escalation of the divine character toward this last act where she becomes, you know, this murderer and then goes to jail. What did you think of this? Pure madness personified. She lost it completely. It went from being famous, uh, the drive to be famous and perhaps better yourself and get out of the, the trashy slums. But it just became a complete show of. Look at me. I'm going to rub on myself. I'm going to jump around. 
it's the divine well it's the dawn davenport show even in jail when she'd been sentenced to death at the electric chair it was hanging around asking for veal cutlets <laughs> signing autographs <laughs> it just became all about look at me and she got her fame she got what she wanted Absolutely. And then then she goes out in a blaze of glory. Now, Jeremy, do you think there's a lot of similarities in this last act between Don Davenport and Divine and Pink Flamingos? Well, it's interesting because there are documentaries and, of course, there is the book Shock Value where John wanted to see if she could just have her go on one last spree of rants. I thought this would be the sequel to Pink Flamingos. It makes sense. I mean, Pink Flamingos, she's ranting, filth is my politics, filth is my life. But here we kind of see a more mature, divine uh, – I, I think she's a little bit more structured, and this is almost Pink Flamingos – 2.0 like we have yeah. evil we have evil dead 2 uh dead by dawn and because of copyright and studio issues the first movie was not a sequel or the second movie wasn't a sequel, it was just like it all had to be redone because there's just so many politics with those two movies so i feel that this movie is pretty much saying that pink flamingos never happened just like Evil Dead 2 is pretty much saying that Evil Dead 1 never happened. So I kind of feel that it's another movie, but it's another universe, and it's a different way of what Divine is saying. She's still ranting and raving, but these rants and raves seem to make a lot more sense where she's talking about what she's doing on stage than what she was doing when she kidnapped the press and forced them to record live homicide. If you don't do it, I'm going to kill your family. Here, it's just, well, again, if, if you don't know the pedigrees, I don't know if we can talk about them now, about Richard Speck and Juan Corona and, and Abby Hoffman, but they were big things back then and big names, and Divine was proud to know of them or just ruin their lives or Bremer, you know, bought the Bre a gun that Bremer used to shoot Wallace. Bremer was trying to, I think, kill the governor of Baltimore, and I think he was trying to kill Nixon or something like that at the time. So mm. she apparently bought that shotgun. But I, I think it's just that's more of that yippie movement that I heard about yeah. with, Ab with Abby Hoffman. So I feel that Divine was pretty much just in Pink Flamingos again. She was all about a title that she really cared about. Here it's like she's trying to be a celebrity in her own way. Where being a celebrity in her own way is that she wants to be this sh thief and shit kicker and she wants a death penalty because for her, that's going to be her Oscar. Right. So that's the difference between the two. I also uh, there there is that. And I think that's a, that's a, a good dissection of what that is. Do you feel that maybe the three characters from the last three movies share a lot of. Um, that kind of her her divine character in multiple maniacs to this one, uh, uh, it, it, there's little aspects that it just felt like it was one character that was just maybe being in a different situation, which just kind of like plays on a, on the same theme and just twisted a little bit. 
No, because I think with multiple maniacs, Divine was just somebody who couldn't handle her own high. And she pretty much – and she couldn't handle her own temper. She was her own worst enemy. I mean in the beginning of Cavalcade of Perversion, she did not care if cops were going to come and arrest them while she was going to mug the spectators. And she just wanted to kill them all. And then she said, fuck the Cavalcade of Perversion. Let's just go out on a spree and shoot everybody. She was just in her own little world. In Pink Flamingos again, she's – I don't know. I mean she's the she's the likable villain. She's kind of like if Ursula had legs and Ursula pretty much – yeah, I mean that's pretty much what it was. <laughs> and she looks like it too. Yeah, I mean she's a diva and we love her for it and she'll do anything just to keep her title. And if you – you know, poke the bear with the stick. We saw what happens here. However, she was just a rebellious teenager and then got brainwashed into stardom because these two people were just using her as an experiment and her mind, I I would say, well, actually we, we didn't talk about this too much as well with Taffy because even when Taffy's nine years old, Dawn doesn't want her to go to school and have friends because she thinks that she knows everything. She even said as a teenager in this movie that she's the one who should be teaching. She knows more than teachers. And John Waters said this in the commentary track that he liked going to school to read and write. But anything else, he'd rather learn on the streets because he just felt that he could learn more that way that, you know, reading and writing was important. Right. Anything else, I mean, if he really wanted to learn about history, he would learn about it on the streets or go to a bookstore math it's basic math you know even in today's day and age you don't really have to find x thanks to the 21st century so that's really what this movie was supposed to be and i feel that that's why this character is different from the other characters it's not her evolving it's just different personas and different situations so they're not the same they're not relatives it's her ranting again but this time it makes it more where she's more dangerous than multiple maniacs and less likable than pink flamingos. But there's more of an interesting point of what John was able to do with the characters from three movies till now. Right. Right. And I think in, in that context to Don Davenport seems to have an insatiable lust for this fame. And the fact that she's got this taste of blood, almost like a shark in the water, she wants to go further and further and further and doesn't care. And it almost makes her the most dangerous character up until this point of any of the movies. She is definitely more bloodthirsty and she just feels that this is art. I mean, we don't talk about this much and I'm sure there was a ton of deleted scenes that was for pink flamingos. There wasn't much for female trouble. Don did discuss a few things in the commentary, but it really much came down to that. We hear the dashers. They're taking photography. Uh, they're, they're taking photos of anything that Dawn is doing from abusing Taffy to cutting off Ida's hand through the acid of um, in, in Dawn's face. I mean pretty much anything that Dawn did, the Dashers are taking photos of. And then when Dawn gets arrested, well, the Dashers are able to use this to protect themselves because the experiment is now over. Let's go ahead and move on and let's give our final thoughts and um... – whether or not we would recommend this movie uh, to viewers. Angelique, um, when all is said and done, what'd you think of uh, Female Trouble? Oh, it was great. It was uh, the most enjoyable 
as far as you know, you can you could really show this in mixed company, you know, as long as they're not offended by gigantic close-ups of dicks. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Hey, no, that's how you introduce us. You go, hey. You, you, you want to watch a movie? Yeah, let's watch a movie. Do you like dick? <laughs> right. Do you like it big and sweaty and gross on screen? All right. We're going to be friends. <laughs> the best story so far, honestly. Awesome. awesome. So would you – obviously, this would be something you would recommend to just about anyone? Absolutely. You are my kind of sicko. Seth Paulin, final thoughts. Easily the most rewatchable – of these early John Waters films for me. I put it on, I end it. I just want to go back and watch it. Even if it's just for the wedding scene where Edith Massey is beating up the priest and beating up on Dawn for taking away her potentially gay hero of a (laughs) nephew. And Dawn's wearing a completely see-through wedding gown with her daughter as the flower girl right in front of her. And fake nipples. Giant fake nipples and... (laughs) pubes on display and a, probably a tucked dick it's just fantastic i love this one Highly i forgot about that scene man i totally forgot that's my about favorite scene, scene. I, it, I am on the floor the entire time that scene's going on <laughs> oh so much good stuff jeremy final thoughts this is possibly the next to last of my favorite water movies. I think this one works better than Pink Flamingos because it's much tighter. It's a more interesting story. And the commentary track is worth it alone because John admits is that this would be the next to last movie where he just stopped using drugs and would stop with the rants because – there was nothing really more to say after a while, but it is depressing. And he's of course has said this and and I can tell why, because most of the people that he worked with died post production due to drug overdoses or STDs. And it's a shame because Edith Matthesy, who Mink has mentioned in documentaries and John has mentioned, and there was a documentary love later to Edie, she would frustrate the hell out of people because she couldn't remember lines and she was really, really trying to memorize everything, including her stage commands. And she would start to talk about her stage commands while memorizing lines. And Edith just got better. And the next movie we talk about, I mean, she is the star. Absolutely. And, you know, we we talked about how she was on the Fitbit. Um, I mean, Edith, Edith to me in this one, God, she was a national treasure. And and we didn't talk much about her life. I, I guess we'll talk about her next movie about where she went from point A to point B. But everything else, I really have to say this is David Lockery's movie. I mean, he's hardly in it, but he's got the best line reads. And Mary Varian Pierce as his overdressed Donna Dasher. I, everything just seems I, – I I know people didn't like this much as Pink Flamingos, and Pink Flamingos apparently has more staying power. And Waters mentioned that as well in the commentary, that it didn't do well. But I have to say that John really did – if you listen to this with the commentary, without the commentary, uh, he topped himself. And I think that's a shame because I don't think people realized what John was really trying to say if you get past 
him being on drugs at the time and and the people that he knew this is an interesting story about how the media and how people brainwash and think about instant celebrity status i i mean he, he's taught this movie in prisons and i can't blame him it, it's a very powerful movie that holds up to this day but ironically every time i put it in my dvd player it just like halfway through it stops. It's like it's trying to regurgitate on itself. It's weird, but I would definitely get your hands on the special edition with the commentary track. It's it's money well spent. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's really unfortunate that this film is probably the hardest one next to Mondo Trash Show to get. It just isn't out there anymore. And the vast majority of these films just aren't out there anymore. And and I don't know if whether or not it's, you know, a matter of some licensing rights or maybe they just don't uh, companies don't see them as viable products right now. But it, it these DVDs are going for pretty hefty rates. I actually, Seth, didn't we talk at one time how you were looking to try and find a DVD copy of this and you were having a really tough time? Yeah, without dropping uh, 40 or 50 bucks right now, you're not getting it. Even the VHS is going for 25, 30 bucks. So I uh, I had to go another route to track it down. I mean, even, uh, you know, multiple maniacs will be easier to come by in a couple months. Oh, Holy oh, cross those know. fucking figures. I want to say, Andrew, I honestly want to say they uh, Criterion heard our episode. They heard, they heard us. They heard I, us talking about it. Not, not, I don't think so, because the first thing that I said was that I wanted him to do um, Mondo Trash and Multiple Maniacs together and put all his early shorts on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I, that's what the fuck I said, Criterion. <laughs> I wish, I wish, but I'm very excited. I think that Multiple Maniacs release is going to be boss as fuck. Yeah, that yeah, short man. promo they released looks amazing. It does, dude. Oh. It looks great, but in, let's let's bring it on back home to to female trouble. It is really depressing that it, it's so hard to find this one. Um, I if you want to get it cheap, I got it at a very reasonable price, right from McStole. Me too. We <laughs> got it the same weekend. Like, yeah. Yep. She said I have them holding it right now. Says to Derek from McStole, and it was a reasonable price. And I got to get it from Mink Stoll's hand, and she's a wonderful individual. So I would recommend if you see her at a convention or somewhere, she probably more than likely will have a copy of Female Trouble for you. Now, that's tough, but that's just how it shakes right now, is unfortunately these movies aren't really out there anymore. Andrew, final thoughts. Man, I love Female Trouble. I was in a band called Female Trouble for a few years, and we did covers of uh, you know female uh, lead singer punk rock and rock tunes and stuff. We did uh, benefits for um, the Rape and Incest Network hotline. We did benefits for Roller Derby and all this other. It was a neat band to be in, dude. Um, but that was my favorite John Waters movie for a long time. I think because he's got 12 films, I think of them as in like four little trilogies, you know? Yeah. And so this is the beginning of my, the one that's, you know, Female Troll of Desperate Living and, and uh, Polyester. And I go back and forth. When I'm watching Desperate Living, I'm like, oh shit, this is my favorite John Waters movie. <laughs> but when I'm watching Female Trouble, I'm like, oh, this is my favorite John Waters movie. I don't know why, man. I think what would stop me from saying that is because Mink's portrayal of Taffy is too dramatically good. 
Like it's funny, but it's really sad. And if you if you were to just tell somebody this story, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The taffy part would break your heart, dude. And for her mom to just choke her out there at the end for being annoying, basically, and for the attention of it, uh, that's that's just like I don't know, man. I'm a little disturbed by that, but that doesn't make it a bad movie. It just means no. this group of people, the Dreamlanders, and then his. He had a makeup artist and an uh, art director, right? Because uh, Vincent Peranio and um, Van Smith, they would just kept getting better at what they did. But the movies didn't start getting lamer because, you know, they were getting better. They kept that. They just they were a true vision and they stayed true to what made all the other ones good. And they still can freak you out. There's just no other director like it. Man. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like we said before, these movies show an, a progression, a progression of a director that was figuring out what he needed to do and finding his voice in order, it, it, well, not in order, finding his voice and each subsequent work got better for it. Um, so it, it is, we kind of talked about Andrew with one of the earlier episodes is, it's really unique to see a director kind of go through film school with his early work. So if you want you want to have that unique opportunity, go through these movies, go from the beginning and watch it because it really is a progression uh, from the Mondo trash show to here to see what an accomplished filmmaker he was becoming. And uh, honestly, I'm going to give my final thoughts on this. And this may come as a shocker. I don't like this movie as much as Pink Flamingos. I just, I just don't. I, I, I well, I, I think it's, it's good. And there's so much in it that, that slays me. There is a section of this film, probably a little past halfway that just kind of drags for me. And it, I think if this movie, and this is just me in general with most movies, because I'm just damn impatient. Um, I think most movies of this nature, seven, a 70-minute runtime would be so beneficial and so helpful. And I think, you know, even though this movie has a lot of momentum and great dialogue and great characters, there is this low in at about like between the halfway and three quarter mark where I just start kind of my interest starts waning. It's, it's unfortunate. It, does, does that mean that I don't like this movie? Not even remotely. This movie kicks ass. <laughs> it's a good movie, but compared to pink flamingos, I don't like this one as much. I, I maybe it's just because I just think pink flamingos is such a kick in your face that um, I find it far more entertaining but this is a good movie. And I think this the first five movies that John Waters made, actually, I'm going to say six. There isn't a bad movie at all in them. But in terms of like my favorite, this isn't going to be my favorite. I would actually put this beneath uh, Multiple Maniacs. So Pink Flamingos and Multiple Maniacs at the top and then Female Trouble. If you really like crazy line reads, uh, really um, kind of like a, a twisty, turny plot that culminates into madness at the end. Check this one out. I think this one is much more akin to kind of multiple maniacs in terms of like how the progression of the story goes. But um, 
Yeah, it's kind of my thoughts. I still dig it. I would still say go check it out, but this isn't necessarily my favorite of these movies so far. So there we go, folks. Next month, you'll be hearing us talk about our first non-divine Waters film, which is Desperate Living. But until then, I'm going to let my uh, panelists here tell you where they can find them on the interwebs if you are so inclined. Jeremy, Tell my listeners where they can find you and your stuff. Facebook.com, Hanukkah And of course, we have two group pages, Hanukkah Podcasters Cafe, and the Hanukkah And those are anybody, either friends or family that want to promote their stuff, go right ahead. And of course, if you're looking for the show, we're on SoundCloud, Google Go Play, Player FM, iTunes. I think I said SoundCloud, of course, was Jermaine RSS feed. Uh, Hanuk Outcasts. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> you, that's how I feel right now. <laughs> it's late. I'm kind of to the point where I'm just going, <laughs> We uh, Between this one, I think, what was it? Killing Joker, like, oh, shit. We wanted this to be an hour podcast, and six hours later, like, yeep. Yeah, (laughs) today's not going to be one of those days, my man. (laughs) Well, thank you for coming on, Jeremy. Seth, where can they find you? Uh, Find me at Celluloid Terror on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, horror, cult, exploitation, film and DVD, Blu-ray reviews, all that good stuff. Catch you next episode. Awesome. Angelique Bone. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. Um, you can also find me and some pretty funny cats at thelosthighway.com. I should just call you Angelique Waits from now on. <laughs> but I'll be back to I'll be back in form next week. Awesome. So. I hope so. I hope so. Get better. Get some sleep. Drink some liquids. Yes, <laughs> that's the plan. <laughs> awesome, Mr. Andrew Shearer. Hey, man, I just want to say thank you for having me on here, man. This is what you're doing is really cool. I really I'm really having a good time talking about these movies. And I uh, I'm just it's just an honor. Sometimes I sit here listening to it. I'm like, oh, right. I'm on this. It's not just a cool show I'm listening to. So I really appreciate it. Um, if anybody wants to watch some of the movies that me and my friends make um, www.gonzorific.com. You can buy some DVDs with some crazy ass movies. They got bad girls, witches, zombies, lesbians, cannibals, uh, love stories, all kind of vampires, whatever ghosts that fart and wear no pants. <laughs> and, and then, um, uh, there's also for rental on Amazon on demand. We got fake blood. We got Mondo Gonzo. We got pajama nightmare, the underground cinema, cinema with an S and the newest one, late night cable and if you buy or rent or any of that shit it just goes right back into making movies and putting pizza in the actors man so they could have all that what they need to take their clothes off and you know be scary and awesome that's what it's all about brother and and as you talk about the amazon rentals I will. I usually don't do this anymore at the end of the show because I have a pre-recorded tag that I, I play so I don't have to say all this stuff anymore but if you are an Amazon Prime member, you can now watch for free our anthology movie, Hole in the Wall. <gasps> Go check it out. It's for free for Amazon Prime members. There is so much in that film that is directly inspired by John Waters and purposely so. And I'm not just doing these episodes for 
you know, just shits and giggles. If you've been listening to this show long enough, you know, John Waters is literally probably hands down the most influential artist out there for me, bar none. There's he just from a very young age sparked something in me that forced me to create things and forces me to think outside the box. And that's why I love talking about these movies. Cause I think they're far more than what a lot of people hold them as a lot of people hold them as trash. I don't see them as that whatsoever. So if you were looking for something, go check out guns, horrific stuff, obviously go check out Andrew's stuff. Cause it's very much John waters, but also go check out our, our anthology movie that Andrew is actually in. Uh. What? For a moment. What? You weren't aware? Oh, I oh, must have had a camera on you. And I then thought they had that sexy bitch in the suit at the beginning of that movie. That was yeah, me. Yeah, that was you. Oh, shit. Well, you learn something every day. Hey, you know, hey, we got one on Prime, too. Um, May of the Dead. Oh, well, that's right. You did put May of the Dead up yeah, there. Lesbians is zombies. That's all. That's a great one, too. I love Thank, that one. Thanks, dude. Yeah. So go check out Amazon Prime. It is a great time for indie filmmakers right now to get stuff out there. This Amazon video direct service that's out there now, as long as you have a movie and you're willing to go through the trouble of putting captions on your movie, it is time to get out there without traditional distribution. I am so beside myself with the number of people that are actually going out there and watching Hole in the Wall. Now, I have not seen these kind of numbers in a long time since this movie's been out. So I'm very happy, and I want to thank you all that have been going out there and checking out Hole in the Wall. It, It really means a lot to me. But if you haven't seen it and you're a fan of this show and you're a fan of these John Waters episodes... Do yourself a favor and go watch some Depravity and go check out on Amazon Prime, Hole in the Wall. Till next time, folks, we're going to be talking about Desperate Living. Grab your cha-cha heels and have a good time. See you later. Astro Radio Z on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, YouTube, and anywhere that podcasts are found. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and email us questions, concerns, or just general chatter at astroradiozpodcast at gmail.com. Coming from me, Derek Carey, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.